1: This is One Heat Minute.
0: Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll.
1: What's your name? Wayne Grove.
0: look like gang bangers, working the local 7-Eleven either.
1: Robbery, homicides, take care. Give me all you got! This and- Give me, you me all you got! It. I do what I do best. Takes you do what you do best I'm trying to stop guys like you. a podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus heat one minute at a time ladies and gentlemen welcome to one heat minute I'm your host Blake Howard and uh, joining me is one of the favorite uh, one of our favorite guests uh, of the show's past this is his third appearance he is the unbelievably awesome producer of the incredible and the now only '80s podcast called '80s All Over. Um, he's also a writer, a feature writer for the Portland Mercury, and you would hear him uh, adding his voice and his insight. And may have seen it on social media, but I know he's having a bit of a hiatus at the moment.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: as literally the best sort of Star Wars, uh, you know, thought leader um out yes. there. Uh, and yeah, so he look without further ado. Ladies and gentlemen, Bobby Roberts. Bobby, welcome to One Hate Minute.
0: Hello. You know what's funny is that um, over the course of the intros and our uh, our little back and forth before we start digging into the minute, um, you can sort of trace the arc of my disillusionment with all social media. <laughs> <laughs> you Actually, not that any listener would want to actually go back and do that, but you could listen to like the first 10 minutes of each of my previous two episodes and be like, oh, oh, he's learning some things in real time, isn't he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Until we get to this one where it's like, oh, he fucking bailed. He's gone. He's gone. Out. He's, gone. <laughs> he's gone for the sake of his mental health. And I think a lot of people in 2019 and at the end of 2018 were sort of on the on the same track. It's like, well, and even if Facebook wasn't literally stealing your information uh, and turning it into <laughs> And even if, you know, like Jack wasn't, you know, essentially turning his entire platform over to Nazis whenever he could, even if those two uh factors were two involved, minor
1: factors. For yeah. Some people just, yeah.
0: both both of those social media platforms would still be some of the, the most awful mental health you could subject yourself to. Here was the brainstorm that I had that uh ultimately led to me seriously because i'd already basically left um in the middle i'm of out of 20,
1: facebook. I'm, I'm out but... of facebook i'm, I'm done yeah. on facebook I'm, I'm still still on twitter for great the great many of the great guests you've had on this show including i got to be introduced to bobby on it so i am thankful for twitter for that yes. but um with some calculated blocking and uh, also <laughs> choosing who i'm mm. gonna follow um it, it does it does sort of help but go on sir please
0: no so like um about midway through 2018 and actually earlier, um, I was just kind of there to be there because I thought I sort of needed to be there uh, much in the same way. Like I know a lot of people have to be there because it's one of the only ways they can sort of get their name out there and and secure work can stay paid. And I'm, I understand. And I recognize that I, I am very much privileged in that, um, my source of income does not at all depend on my social media presence so i can afford to leave if i want to but this was the brainstorm that that caused me to go you know what i i need to walk And it was I was raking leaves. I distinctly remember this. I was raking leaves in my front yard and I was thinking about my mom and dad because I had to get them both presents for Christmas. I like to get those presents early. So it's out of the way. And, you know, I put some thought into it Uh, and I'm thinking about things to get them. And I was remembering back into back in like the mid late 80s when they both decided that they were going to finally quit smoking because. You know, people that age, everyone just smoked like it, at age, you know, in the 50s, you hit, I think, like 15 or 16. And they just started handing you cigarettes. And that's
1: <laughs> medicine. <laughs> back in <Yeah. laughs> Medicine. Here you go. You got a cough. Smoke these. And
0: so they they were they had their struggles with quitting smoking. And um, a lot of it came down to the fact that they started it when they were young. Uh, it was legitimately cool. Um, I d I, I don't think I'm out of bounds saying that, especially as I love a where this thing. is
1: going. No, it's extremely cool. Smoking is fucking cool. It smells like shit and it, it does horrible like things to your inside. You look you 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 taste like <laughs> shit after it you your, oh. all your clothes smell. But Ugh. real but if someone shoots you in black and white with the right down lights, you look fucking cool. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
0: They, they all start because they look cool. There's an element of coolness to it. There's this element of, like, rebellion and and counterculture. And, and all this thing is tied up with, you know, lighting dead leaves on fire and sucking on them, right? There's <laughs> so much cool shit. And eventually you get addicted. And you and you keep doing it because it's giving you something that you think you need. And eventually you get to a point where you realize you're too old. None of this is cool. It's just hurting you. And, and – you decide you're going to get out, but you can't get out and you get all frustrated and angry and, and literally sick and snapping at people and your patience wears completely thin. And I realize that's exactly what it's been like for me the last three years trying to quit social media cold turkey and the division between the generations that made itself so crystal clear. My mom and my dad damn near killed each other. Because of leftover aggression from trying to avoid shit like emphysema and lung cancer. I'm doing essentially the exact same thing, except what I'm getting in return is looking cool for coming up with a one lighter and getting fifteen retweets for it.
1: <laughs> that yeah, is it's... that is the that is the nicotine cutting yes. through the blood the blood brain barrier and like doing shit with your dopamine to like keep you calm.
0: Yeah, no, no my, my parents are trying to avoid literal death. <laughs> I'm just trying to avoid <laughs> stressing over whether or not someone important liked my tweet. I'm like, what the fuck? I'm gone. I'm out. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I feel like I'm insulting my parents. <laughs> I'm doing a disservice to myself. Oh Plus, my God. This, and this, this was the other spark because I had been so active in,
1: in uh, fandoms. For a very long time. And Star, um, and and star it, Wars fandom, particularly last year, took a motherfucker oh, of a turn.
0: Oh, my God. And the thing that um, became very apparent to me, and it had always been apparent, but for whatever reason, you know, getting your brains beat in on Twitter um, is what it took for me to finally seriously internalize this. There is no part of fandom that you need to engage in in order to appreciate the thing you're a fan of. Correct. It's it's 100 percent voluntary. You don't actually need to be there. The movie is not going to be any different whether you're there or not talking with people online. And as a matter of fact, um, (laughs) I you're more often than not uh, predisposed to getting more out of it when you're when you're just forced to engage with it one on one you versus the movie and not even versus the movie, but you just sort of. Focused on the movie and thinking about the movie as it's happening in front of you Um, substituting that thinking that experience and that feeling with um, scrolling, you know, 15, 16 other people's Twitter feeds uh, seems easier and seems more interactive. And it seems like you're probably getting more out of the uh, material, but it's it's entirely elective. And if you remove that elective, uh, nothing about the thing you love changes. Not
1: all. No you you don't you don't as, and especially because and this is the thing I've deeply loved about this project mm-hmm. and and loved about your work on 80s all over is that with a little bit of distance you know the the, yeah. the luxury of hindsight there is a more enriching analysis to be had because you yeah. can finally objectively view entire philosophical trends, social trends, political trends. Um, Mm -hmm. you get to have a look back a little bit, you know, with a little bit more time, there seems to be so much fury in the immediacy of a reaction. Um, whereas like the other day and you, you know, speaking of Star Wars, the other day, um, Well, my little boy was like sort of, he was being a bit fussy. He's getting some teeth, so he's being quite fussy. And his sister was already asleep, and I was having trouble putting him to sleep. And anyway, he sort of went to sleep on me, and we're watching Star Wars, The Last Jedi. And I just, I could have gone and picked him up and put him to bed, but he was being a bit fussy. So he was just sitting on me while I was watching it on TV. And I was just relishing the movie. Like in a way, snuggling my little guy while I was watching it, I was just like, oh, I can't wait to share this with you. Like, I know I'm kind of sharing it with you right now because I'm really enjoying it and you're comfortable and you're asleep. But I was just watching The Last Jedi the other day and I was just marvelling. I'm like, people got so angry. But I don't think that people really are even ready to understand how amazing it is that this thing exists in the canon of our favorite, of of the biggest franchise in movies that has ever existed.
0: Well, and I think what you're uh, what you're sort of talking around uh, is the thing that um, I have really learned to appreciate over the last couple of years. Um, you're talking about perspective, yes, and, and modern fandoms, and fandoms even going back, because I've been you know heavily involved in fandoms and the sort of weird inner workings and politics of fandoms for literally twenty years now. I've, As a I've producer
1: been... of X Men Explained, yeah, and all kinds Cause of stuff. Because that's because. Seriously, I can't even imagine some of the shit that those boys (laughs) would have gotten as part of that show because you're talking about... You're going deep on the actual... On the material, not just the movies. You're Mm -hmm. in the comic books and all the different runs and all the different personalities of all the different huge personalities Mm -hmm. that ran those books. But
0: but even that, even that is uh, an example of perspective being applied and perspective being a great leavener. Like, fandom is almost specifically designed to collapse perspective, to shrink it down yes. because fans, it sort of helps fans interact with not just the material that they're in love with, but the larger world through that materials prism. If you can shrink the rest of the world down to fit and just under the shadow of the thing that you love, suddenly you feel a little bit more capable, a little bit more in control. You can start to make sense of things, and your fandom becomes the prism by which you interact with the rest of the world. That's essentially how it's always fucking worked. But in order to do that... Yeah, fucking brown coats, I swear to God. (laughs) In In order to do that, like perspective has to get compressed like yeah. mpeg compressed i'm like mpeg one on a vcd <laughs> compressed and that's get, and that, gets that is some fucking ch-
1: that is some fucking light nineties technology dave cuts
0: <laughs> <laughs> and 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 the compression is ugly uh and hard to look at and hard to take and eventually, if you like, if you watched a VCD back in the day, or you know that bootleg rip of Phantom Menace that you all swear you didn't steal, but I know you did. <laughs> if you watched that, eventually you got used to it, and you it's yeah. you know frog in a pot, right? And once you remove yourself. From a fandom like I did like I needed To uh, and not just for my own mental health But you know that particular fandom Doesn't need any more people who look like me Popping off at the mouth It, it just fucking doesn't nope. um, But once you remove yourself It's almost it's ex- <laughs> I'm going back to the smoking thing Once you stop smoking your lung capacity Immediately starts to improve um, And and all the Ill effects of the last cigarette you smoke start to Reverse themselves once you remove Yourself from a fucking fandom Perspective just starts flooding in And you start realizing how unimportant All the flailing that you've been doing Really is like so much Of the noise and the froth Associated with a fandom Is people who are scared That they aren't mattering Flopping around as hard as they can (laughs) in In a means To matter as little as possible With as much effort Expended as possible to matter that tiny iota and it's like the worst expenditure of personal energy and mental health that you can make
1: yeah you want to enrich your perspective part of the great this is what i've loved about this show is the very thing that i wanted that my aspiration was with this show and i hope that you guys now listening like today i'm talking to bobby and i'm uh, today i'm talking to bobby and we are at the 116th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 Crime Opus Heat. And I've tried to talk to such a rich variety of folk with different experiences. From literally making it, like Dante Spinotti and may you rest in peace, Pascual Buber, or, or Or my friend Lisa Maloof, who saw the movie for the show. She'd never yeah. seen it before. She's an absolute old Hollywood nutcase in the best possible way. Like, she's an obsessive. She even has a mini film school for her nieces and nephews. Like, she takes photos and posts them on her Instagram where she's showing them a new old movie and she makes them take notes and she's amazing. She's just the best kind of aunt in the history of... She's the, She's creating a great new generation of cinephiles as we speak. That's but that's the spectrum, is to find enriching perspectives across and just... Take it for what it is. That people don't have to love like this. One one thing I've loved about One Eight Minute, there are people who've been on the show who don't love it. In fact, Maria Lewis, who's one of my best friends, tells me this is your bullshit, man, bullshit. <laughs> like, I think she says bullshit more than any other guest that's been on the show. Um, but yeah. but uh, and, and really just talked about the jackal. I think for twenty minutes. But because um, uh, of <laughs> Diane Venora. But but uh, I think that that's you know being able to um, wrestle with where. Different people's perspectives on things, um, mm-hmm. and, and and taking that in, and not like as you said, you know, compressing stuff, is what has been so enriching about this, yeah. and so and sometimes so like suffocating about like yeah. other fandoms that it's it, 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 especially in that toxic like echo chamber environment <laughs> 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 <It's> <laughs> social media bang 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 it's literally like being in it's literally like being in a los angeles street while val kilmer fires an ar 13 assault rifle and it's just like bah, nah, 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 like the reverberation of the sound is deafening and you just can't get out of it well
0: and it's not just the reverberation like you stay in there long enough you end up like uh val kilmer in the scene that we're about to watch <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> yes. where you've caught a bullet and next thing you know, uh, John Cusack's best friend is leaning <laughs> over you, looking just gross, uh, and, <laughs> and you have no idea what the fuck is going on. Uh, and
1: that's and that's the minute we, we're in, right? That is exactly yes. right. We're at the 116th minute. And what I said to Bobby, I was reaching out to Bobby. And I was like, oh, I want you to come back on the show as we're m- on the downhill slope of of this of this marriage, the marriage between me and this show, um, and. <laughs> As we're on the downhill slope, I was like, "What better minute to bring Bobby?" And he's already done his, his best Al Pacino impression. Let's get Jer- Jeremy Piven. <laughs> he's got to be a guy that we can we can unpack in this movie. Another random cameo. We see Jeremy <laughs> Piven as the doctor uh, working on Christian hairless after he's taken a bullet near his clavicle. Neil is opening this minute, saying, "Bottom line, like he wants to know whether this guy's going to live or die." So Bobby and I now are going to watch this minute. And uh, I'm so glad you're back because that was really fun, that chat. <laughs> I love, and, and, and speaking of a man who's just tried to quit smoking, we now have a, medi- a fake medical professional for him to unpack and examine as well. Um, so here we are, 116th minute, Michael Mann's 1995 crime, crime opus heat. Uh, Bobby and I are going to talk about it, or we're going to watch it together rather, and we're going to come back and talk about it with you guys.
0: Bottom line, it's mostly tissue damage, which is good.
1: But his uh, clavicle's fractured. Can you rest for a while? Six, seven hours. That's it. That's it. Take off your shirt. What?
0: Take off your shirt.
1: My, my, my daughter. I gave it to me, father. I don't give a shit who gave it to you. Take it off.
0: He's going to pick you up. He's going to take you to his place. Where's Charlene? We got to get out of here. We're all over the 6 o'clock news. We got to get out
1: of here. I'm not going without her. Think about that. I will meet you at Nate's. Where are you, Where are you going? Think about that. <laughs> Think about that. What? Isn't that just, I'm not going anywhere without Charlene? Think about yeah. that. Think <laughs> That's about
0: the that. first thing. That's the first thing he says. He wakes up and he asks for Charlene. Uh, the thing that I, uh, I like uh, so much about Piven here, because this is this one minute is the entirety of his his screen time in the film, correct? Pretty much. I mean,
1: there's a the, you see his hands really, yeah, like yeah. in the but, previous minute, but it's it's not, it's nothing.
0: He is there specifically. That one minute is entirely there to sort of reset um, Neil's status as a man who is decisive. Who is in control and who can get shit done? Um, he is there for for Neil to pee on. That's 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 it. That's one percent. It. Yes. And 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 he does a really good job of it. Also, the first thing I noticed on a completely superficial level, um, I believe this is the last time Piven let his natural hairline be shot in one hundred percent. One theres There is
1: there there is his fame level after this uh-huh. starts to get high enough where the vanity of a hairline <laughs> needs to set in, yeah. so to speak.
0: As his, fame, as his fame level increased, his hairline slid farther down his skull. Yeah, so so
1: I, I, I don't I
0: don't blame him. If I had access to that money and I knew that the entirety of my being depended on people taking pictures of me and threading them through a projector, yeah, maybe I would also do something about the fact that the entire top half of my hair, I look dead. like Ed Harris, you know, <laughs> that, that sort of thing. <laughs> or I look. Let's, I don't know why I reached for Ed Harris. I look like Danny DeVito. Oh, and good. Like you might want to do
1: something about. I like that. The Ed Harris look. It's dignified. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> That's why I went for Ed Harris. I was trying to be nice to myself, and then I was like, no, be real about yourself. Hence <laughs> DeVito. But um, no, uh, it's it's very interesting this scene um, because of the way Piven is there. He got stuff done. Piven is competent. Piven knows what he's doing, and he's actually saving Chris for Neil. Mm. So he's carrying out a job the way Neil would want him to carry it out, and he did it efficiently, um, and he's doing it well. But I think Chris becomes sort of like this this uh, externalization of Neil's own doubts about himself, I'll and t- Neil can't and, and Neil can't be inside his own head like that. So being presented this ugly, gross gift of Chris being broken and needing to be fixed is sort of invigorating to Neil because now he gets to be in control again. That's an external thing that he can wrap his hands around and and you know swing his dick around and show everybody how in control, how forceful, how on the ball, how sharp, on the edge, he really
1: <laughs> is. And, and I think that man is able to heighten that with just how fucked up Chris looks. I love this scene from a, uh, taking a genre lens to it, I get really frustrated when someone gets shot in a movie and it's completely inconsequential. Like, I get a glancing blow, shrapnel, da-da-da-da-da. You see in more like war movies that at least have more realistic approaches to, you know, the cut a little bit. They they at least have a little bit of a, a stumble, a swagger. They need to be bandaged or, you know, be have a medic come, et cetera. But I love here, Chris is fucked up. And the great thing about <laughs> Piven is that he knows what he's doing, clearly, but... They're doing an operation with very little, um, with very little painkillers or very little pain numbing things. It's mm. a very brutal affair. This, a bullet from a high-powered rifle has hit him and has just chewed up his shoulder, and he looks like shit. It's actually quite a relief in this scene to see that. So you've got the entanglement of this projection. You know, Chris is an embodiment of the of the heist. It's just, it's all the shit. It's just alive. But they you know, the entire concept, the entire goal is still it's alive and kicking, but it's slurring and it's a mess. And so Neil, to your point exactly, is trying to rectify this. So trying to take charge, trying to take it, um, uh, uh, trying to get back and be sharp. But I also yeah. love there's a great contrast with Piven's ability, just unintentionally, to go, oh, this is from my daughter. And he goes, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. like Basically. (laughs) He's like, I don't don't even fuck if that's your daughter's gift. I don't care. Mm Well,
0: and that whole dynamic is really interesting because it's both of them trying to put on their acts as convincingly as possible. Yes. And, of course, Piven's going to lose. But Piven, I get the sense that he we've already established that he's competent, but he's also sort of ineffectual and he's also just sort of, this is why you cast Piven. He's an asshole. He's 100% a fucking asshole. Otherwise he (laughs) wouldn't be doing what we're watching him do right now. Yeah. So, He's a guy that can do a thing and a guy that can get that thing done, which you think Macaulay should automatically respect. But he's also this schlub with a crappy mustache and a receding hairline. He's kind of got a lack of confidence. And that is just sniffable enough for Neil to want to stomp out because Neil needs to feel more in control right now. And that's why he smacks the money down and it's it's basically like i own you it's not just here's your money you have to do what i say now it's like i own you don't think that you are bigger than you actually are because you know you're fucking not i bought you Correct. And you just this is the purchase this is the transaction that's being made and you sort of see that piven thinks he's sort of on the level the way he's talking to
1: neil at the beginning of the conversation, they're, they're yeah. very, they are on the level. It's like bottom line, me clavicle, hours, mm. cool. And as soon as he – like, and this is the thing. It's the timing. You nailed it. It's the slamming down of the money and then yeah. the timing of his objection, which is family-based. He says, yeah. you know, my daughter, I guess I think a fuck you bought for you. Like, give me it. I don't care. I I've put, I've put the money on the table. This is the transaction. This isn't a conversation anymore. It's nothing. Yeah. But I want to ask you, Bobby. I think mm-hmm. that his almost like that band-aid relief of like saying, No, give me your goddamn shirt helps mm-hmm. him be more delicate to Chris. Because it does. when Chris it... says Charlene first, as you so pretty much aptly point out, he's yeah. able to go like he's he's not as inclined to go, What the fuck are you thinking about her for? He's like <laughs> think about that. Yeah. Just it's, he's it's...
0: It's definitely him, sort of popping the blister with Piven. Yes, which
1: yes, is, it, that's Piven, what it is. Piven it's popping the blister
0: yeah. with with Piven. It's it definitely is, and it's also like I think he just sort of needs to pump himself up. But that's not a thing Neil would ever admit to himself or admit to anybody else. But it's kind of what he's doing. He's feasting on Piven's uh, in incom- not incompetence, but sort of uh, you know. Not quite
1: spinelessness either. Sentimentality. But you know what I'm- he's not a sentimental guy. That's what he's doing. It's a feast what? on sentimental. Oh, my daughter gave me this. I don't fucking care. I just gave you this money and I want what? that. I'm having a transaction with you.
0: And it also says something about Piven's character and the way that uh, that Macaulay would respond to it. That Piven realizes, "Oh shit, I'm not on the level with this dude. I really am, uh, you know, playing in a game with men, and I'm not supposed to be on this field." That his initial, his his first thought on how to back out of it, on how to level the playing field again, which he's never going to do because it was never level in the first place. His first thought is to use his daughter as a shield. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and you know Neil's going to be like. If you didn't want to give me the tie, you should have just said fucking no. But no, you had to be a whining, mewling little prick and say, my daughter got me. I don't give a fuck about your daughter. (laughs) Neither do you, obviously, because look where you are right now and I just bought you. Anyone yeah. who gave a damn about their daughter would let themselves be bought like this. And he smacks a brick of money on the table. You know, like that's what's happening in this inter- in this interaction. You've got Piven as a small timer who thinks he's going to be a big timer is never going to be a big timer because he's too intest- in just his intestinal fortitude is not there no. to do it. It's there just enough to do what he did for Chris and get paid for it. But anything beyond that, he can't can't swing. He can't swing. He's
1: he's a transactional entity in this. He's just, I'm there for this small purpose. And as you said, as he attempts to uh, attach any humanity or sentimentality to what they're trying to achieve, it's like squashed. We're not talking about like Neil begins the conversation so greatly, like literally on the cusp of the previous minute at 115 and 116 with bottom line. Like, I think if you, you time it out right, it'll say bottom line. And he wants to know what the end state is. He doesn't care about he, anyone's feelings. Um, mm-hmm. He just cares about what what needs to happen for his friend to survive.
0: Yeah, and he needs to be in business mode. He's sort of forcing himself to get back into that shape because everything got botched so bad. Yes. And I sort of feel like the, the scene – this is my reading of the scene – is that um, – he normally would not be that harsh, but he sort of needs to to get back into that spot. Yeah. And that's like the absolute worst time for Piven to show any sort of weakness, which of course he does. And so Macaulay just immediately, ju- I need to be in business mode. You, I'm just going to go ahead and, and beast on you right now because that's going to get me to the place where I need to be in order to go have this conversation with Chris. So, Well, in, so, off- in so
1: many of his next interactions, so like, yeah. I, I think you're spot on. In so many of his next interactions, he has to demonstrate delicacy. So for Chris, so he gets to stomp He gets to stomp hard on Piven here. Mm -hmm. And then he has to go and talk delicately to Chris about Nate. And Nate and he have that great fraternal relationship. So they're having lots of delicate conversations. And even there's an upcoming conversation where he encounters Edie for the first time. And she's just completely reeling because he is literally splayed all across the six o'clock news. And everyone knows about all the mistakes they've made and, and, and things like that. And he goes in there like a bull originally and he has to claw like he, and he completely puts her offside and and then what he has to do is he has to sort of crawl back and claw back that relationship later so it's this you actually do get to see a little bit of that energy shift right i think you you're you spot on it's like it's not as overt as him puffing himself up like getting his heart started um you know there's that wonderful scene in michael Mann's next film after this the insider where um uh, chris plummer uh, fires up at one of the, uh, um, in the opening scene where he's interviewing the, the, the uh, Hezbollah leader in Lebanon um, with Al Pacino as well, and he fires up at one of the Hezbollah leaders like counterparts just to get his heart started, you know? Yeah. It's never going to be as overt as that. It's going to be around this ebb and flow and control, and if he's in control and he's wielding his gun and he's he's doing that, and it's, 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 it's that right now, it's, the, Neil's energy is being completely toyed with, and there's some upcoming scenes especially an upcoming scene at the stilts house where he goes to you know take things out on treo that i think he's going in like he wants to with van Zant and just blasting his way through and getting that revenge and exacting it and clearing it out but it's a completely different vibe it's a completely different energy that's about to well, come up
0: and, and it's like everything that happens with uh, neil in in heat is that it's very controlled oh yeah. even when he's even when he's you know lost completely it's controlled you're never going to get that sort of big de niro moment in this film which is partially why it's as impactful as it is is because it forces de niro to take all those big things that he can do and sometimes is allowed to do from other directors and just push it until it's like this this super dense ball of of pure focus and determination and I, I think he's puffing himself up a little bit and, and standing on Piven's neck in order to sort of get some of that energy back because he needs it. But it's never going to be as overt as, you know, backhanding him essentially or, you know, really, you know, going after him, you know, in the solar plexus <laughs> just giving him body <laughs> blows in order to make him... It's never going to be quite that overt. Nah. Like, take off your fucking shirt is as overt as it's going to get. But what even... Take off your fucking shirt. As terse as it is, as businesslike as it is, he's straight out saying, you need to give me your clothes. Make yourself naked. Make yourself small. (laughs) Give me your fucking armor. I don't care who gave it to you. I don't care. I need it, and that's there's a there's a real it's a really weird and really short because it only takes 30 seconds of this minute too. Yeah. It's a really weird and really short investigation into male power dynamics and is and broken messed up male power dynamics. Like Neil doesn't need to be this way. Um, he 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 thinks he needs to be this way in order to operate in the world that he lives in, and he's not necessarily wrong, but. He doesn't need to be that way, and Piven's character absolutely should not act that way because he cannot fucking wear it well. <laughs> um, and so you got, <laughs> you got these two forces working on each other, and obviously Neil establishes dominance. Uh, but the fact there's even a battle for dominance there at all sort of says something about the engine that propels this movie forward, and most of the male characters in the movie together, like they're sort of broken. Um, and they've got messed up ideas of what it means to to be a man and to have a code, and they're pursuing them as well as they can, but they're not really digging any deeper underneath that code to see if they should maybe try instituting a new one. Um, and so they you can't just
1: escape ent- it, Bobby. No, they cannot. You they you, absolutely- you coined the wonderful the wonderful phrase, which we use many times in this symphony of damaged masculinity. Yep. It it is. It is people being programmed into doing things. And, and this is Piven literally trying to step outside of the program. Like it yeah. is him going, uh, can I attach any sentimentality? Like this may have, you know, he may have been used before. You get the sense that he's been used before for little nicks and yeah. bruises and and small operations. They're familiar with each other. There's a shorthand with the money. There's no doubt that Neil's like compensating him very healthily for what he's doing. And yeah. this tiny Injection of sentimentality into the program, even though he's just been given like thousands of dollars to do an illegal operation on a criminal, which he could eventually (laughs) be charged for himself. Even though he's doing all these things, there's this very calculated, I'm just going to try and step out of the code. And in this, and Neil just going, bang, squash, see you later. Like that's that's the perfect answer yeah. for a lot of these guys is when when they step out of the code or they try and inject something that doesn't belong there's a punishment and in this one it's a minor one it's a, it's a it's a humiliation it's not a yeah. um it's not death <laughs> as we've just seen <laughs> dealt out big time but sometimes it is death in this movie and what's yeah. So, and yeah you're so right there is and for 30 seconds it is 30 seconds of intimate two shots um mm-hmm. Um, staged, you know, standing and one laying down and um, and, and Neil standing over in, in, in the second half of this minute. And these sort of intimate two shots about power dynamics. And for, and almost, you know, Chris is the damaged, you know, damsel here almost. Like Neil's, you know, talking to him very slowly. Like here, bottom line, ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. But Chris's state, he's like, slowly, Nate is going to pick you up. You know, mm-hmm. we're all over the six o'clock news. I've got to fix this for us. Like he's he's... He's being very gentle and it's quite patronizing in a way, but, you know, he's kind of drugged out of his zonked out of his mind. You can tell by the looks in his eyes, you know, only from look from the 33rd second of this minute and he's completely zonked.
0: And you can also see how controlled he is, even in how he pulls back. Like what he wants to say to Chris right there is, no, you're being dumb and sentimental. Stop it. What he says is, think about that. Think about that. Like, he's, he's, he's trying to give some of the power he just got. He just pulled out of Piven's chest like multiple. <laughs> he's trying to give that power back to Chris by saying, think, think about, about it. that. What he's really saying is, make the decision I want you to make and the decision that I've trained you to make, which you know is the right one, which is stop worrying about Charlene right now. And that's what I want you to do. But he's not going to say it that way.
1: You no, know, because he can't, he can't do it
0: like that. He can't Chris do it like sp- that right now, especially. Chris
1: doesn't speak that language. And so you no. can even see him laying the groundwork in that wonderful original conversation at his house, where he's like, "You yeah, ever going to get an old lady?" And he's like, "When I get around to it." And like so, in that conversation, he's laying the platform. Remember what he said: "Da da da da." The sun rises and sets with a man. Okay, I'm going to keep having this conversation in a roundabout way that you need to be able to get up and leave this person. Yeah. Um. But again, he's very he's, good so he's at all- doling. He's very good at doling out the advice. He's not very good at following it. And he's also really good
0: at sort of like. I mean, he's a shark. That's the entire point of him in this movie is that he's a shark. He sees a thing. He wants to go get it. He wants to get it in the most efficient way possible. And even his trying to reassert uh, dominance and control over this fucked up situation is is shown in a very controlled way in the beginning of the scene which starts before this minute where i jumped in the first thing you see is him crowding piven over the operation table yes. he's not like giving piven any room to work he's subtly just physically reminding piven towering over him you are doing this because i am paying you to do this and, and you better do it right because i'm paying good money for you to do it right
1: and, 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 and that's, also it's And he's holding Chris down. So it's like, this is the other thing about Piven having already been outweighed on the power dynamic is that he's they're doing this in such a backhanded way that they can't even give him the right pain relief to do what they need to do. He has to hold him down and monitor what happens and make sure and literally be covered in Chris's blood as it's happening. It's a very, that even those few seconds is just so deeply agonizing as a viewer. Like, you're just like, God, this is nuts.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's... It's a pretty interesting scene for showing how Neil is in his own way trying to reestablish some control and some dominance, but he's not going to be showy about it. And I think Piven is perfect casting for that because that's always been an element. And you, you sort of get the sense that Piven's been trying to fight against that his entire career, the idea that people respond to him yes. because... He, He's absolutely full of shit, and everyone around <laughs> him see it. He doesn't want them to see it, and he'll and he just refuses reality.
1: And like but every I, single, but th- I think that that's so like he's got this like innate trigger that says power dynamics, you know. And in this yeah. scene, that it's sixteen seconds is the frame in the minute that we're talking about. The look he gives Neil is this slimy, calculating, like down. It's like hang dog, but it then turns from hang dog that I'm being shamed to have to take off this shirt into calculating. Yeah. How do I flip the power dynamic? And, you know, his most iconic performance is obviously Entourage for many years. He was critically lauded for it. And the great thing yeah. about that was it wasn't just that he was a complete asshole and that yeah. he was, like, yelling at everyone. It the, the, most, the thing that actually made his entire performance is with the times he chose not to do that was the mm-hmm. times when there were more powerful people in a room than him. Yeah. Um, or the times that he kind of met his match, you know? And so I think that if anyone's seen that show and you look at this, like that's, that's, that's a great wheelhouse to stay. Cause that's many characters you can play like just yeah. on the edge of a power dynamic. Am I the person that can yell at you or am I the person that's being scolded? And I think he's, mm-hmm. he fits in that core. That's where he's wise. That's everything about yeah, him. Yeah. is like, that is that, is that perfect. And you, you know, here he's on the right arc of his career. You know, he's just coming up. De Niro is obviously De Niro. Um, He's got the right look, he's ambitious, and so it all fits into this guy who wants to be on screen with De Niro. He's got the am- underlying ambition, he's happy that he's in there, he's trying to establish power, and he gets t- put in his place. Yeah. It's the per- it's yeah. like, it's all those things, confluence of character and and life experience and and career and it's just it's it's all hitting in this perfect here's, perfect moment. It's the thing that I I've, I've a lot of my uh,
0: my introduction to basic concepts of of comedy of timing and of characterization. I shit you not come from Looney Tunes. Yeah, I grew up. I grew up on Looney Tunes. Chuck Jones, man. Fucking hell. Yes. Chuck Chuck Jones is one of like the five best comedic minds that the earth has ever, ever given us. So, um, so a lot of times I'll watch a movie and I'll just find myself relating somebody's performance or their character type back to when I first, you know, experienced it watching Looney Tunes. The reason I think Piven works and and resonates with people in his most successful characters, which are all fairly similar in one way or another, he is the yappy bulldog. (laughs) I mean, he's still a bulldog and he can be intimidating. Yes. But he's also this yappy shit. Shit. That is out of his depth, and you are just waiting for the cartoon to get to the point where some comeuppance is it's going come to out knock of that his cats off. Yeah, and that, <laughs> that's, that's, like the, that's the built-in tension uh, that his character thrives off of in, in Entourage. In almost any movie that he shows up in, the tension is how long before this asshole, this dissatisfied asshole, overreaches... <laughs> And gets his hand smacked for it and we get to laugh at him for it. That's almost always what it is. Like, he was given a couple vehicles. Uh, the the one that pops on uh, immediately is, I, I forget what the title of it was, but he was like a used car salesman. Yes. Um, and the reason that movie didn't really work as well as it should have is because that dynamic was entirely gone. Like, yeah. the audience was asked to identify with him uh, and, and root for him to get something done. And that's, I don't Piven's never worked that way. Piven no. is the guy you watch, you observe, and you react to, but you don't ask anyone to actually step into that guy's shoes because he's
1: he's a warning sign, you know. Like yeah, you he, want him to be the rich asshole, you want him to be the you know the bully yeah. agent, you know. You want you want him to be around f- flexing all the braggadocio and you're just waiting for that calculated moment when he gets his comeuppance. Your, your yeah. yappy bulldog analogy is perfect. It's perfect. Mm. And And that's
0: I mean, you got to give it to man. He made a three-hour crime epic. Uh, there's still like an hour to go after this point. Chris has been shot, and there's still like an hour <laughs> of this movie to go. Um, and he manages to not only recognize Piven's place in film history, but distill all of that down into about 30 seconds of screen time and use it in a way that makes uh, De Niro's character and performance
1: that much more uh, nuanced. It's nuts. That is the perfect ending to this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking the incredible Bobby Roberts for being a part of One Here Minute, mate. Thank you so much. Three eps. Thanks. You've been absolutely incredible. If you don't, if we don't get a chance to hook up one last time, I'm deeply grateful for your uh, contribution and your support. So thank you so much. Best of luck with the lads on 80s all over. Um, yeah. Literally, one of the most in-depth and agonising uh, pursuits to go through all of the '80s, and they are right in the thick of it. You know, I think we nearly came up around hundred episodes together. Um, they've got uh, many more movies that they're talking about than this show, <laughs> and Bobby is the guy who's <laughs> getting all the sound grabs um, in the background and doing a lot of the producing um, um, yeah. with, with the lads. So thank you so much, um, and not- mate, this has been uh, this has been a, a real treat. The yappy bulldog Jeremy Piven. And Michael Mann's genius to to slot him in and literally give the template for the rest of his career. This is great. Yeah. Thank you, man. Thank you very much. And uh, yes, listeners,
0: if you want to hear uh, more people talk about movies, uh, 80s all over. uh, The idea is that they go through every month of the 80s in order uh, and review
1: all the major uh, releases of that month. Um, and can I, can I emph- emphatically say, right now, while we're going through the thick of the 80s, and there's lots of the big movies that are our nostalgia porn these days in 2019, I would strongly encourage you to go back, if you do like the show, go back right to the start. There is a wonderful year of 1980, which is a weird and wonderful year in the history of cinema, that is sprinkled with... New Hollywood Hangover and the blockbuster era all sort of converging um, in the same year. And so I I would really, uh, I even said to Bobby even before we started recording that they might be some of my favorite episodes of the show because um, they were still, you know, there's this still weird Hollywood not quite knowing what the modus operandi is. And, uh, and, you know, because all these young guys... Um, and gals that had amazing ideas and got all this funding in the late, you know, in the in the late sixties and throughout the seventies in the new Hollywood era, who are now the juggernauts and the geniuses that we, you know, we we celebrate today, were all still sort of um, getting paid to do crazy stuff early in the eighties before, obviously, um, yeah. you know, our modern cinema uh, practices took over. Well, and it gets back to uh, what we were talking
0: about before we dug into the minute. It gets back to uh, perspective. Yes. Um, and it was a thing that um, Drew and Scott, uh, the hosts of the show, uh, the, the geniuses who came up with the concept itself and the people who have to actually watch and review all the movies. I just have to line edit uh, their, <laughs> their, their discussions uh, and then put sound clips and, and try and make it all sound like a show as opposed to the uh, you know, two and a half, three hour conversations <laughs> they have. Uh, of raw material. But the perspective that they uh, bring to it, uh, you know, the distance of time, the love of being able to look back and see things for what they are, plus just sort of Having it go month by month, you're sort of forced to take a larger view as the months stack up. And the thing that um, became apparent to all of us – I mean it's not just you. I'm glad that you picked up on it because it's absolutely there – is that the 80s don't really start until like 83.
1: Yes. Which I was just going to the- say Jedi. The year of Jedi is like that. what people consider and- the 80s is kind of ringing it in.
0: And if you have that larger perspective and you can sort of remember or know what the 80s were like historically, culturally, anthropologically, um, you can sort of see through the art that was being made in 79, 80 and 81 and then getting released in theaters the following year. You can you can literally see the arc of of hope and progressivism uh, and forward thinking just fall off a fucking cliff. (laughs) like you look at 1980 and you sort of still get the sense that everyone at the time was starting to feel like, this could actually go somewhere. We might have a handle on this. You've got nine to five making people feel like, uh, you know, gender equality in the workplace could be attainable. Uh, you've got a bunch of movies where uh, gay characters, trans characters are being introduced and not treated as as uh, as unicorns or <laughs> jokes to be treated horribly like they're just being presented and portrayed as legit People And there's all sorts of things like that happening in film in the first three years of the 80s. And as the 80s progress, you can just see all of that get squeezed out as Reagan rises and consolidates power. You can literally, through the art being released, see him squeeze all the goodwill uh, and, and forward-looking uh, progress of the 70s. In his little wrinkled liver spotted fist until we hit 1985 and we're left with like Sylvester Stallone's oily pecs and uh, <laughs> Schwarzenegger single handedly, you know, winning wars that we lost 20 years pri- prior, and Chuck Norris beginning his ugly, weird, beardy empire of conservative garbage. Um, like all that stuff. It's a decade that starts to fall in love with itself, jerk off to itself. <laughs> Out, out haze and that's not there in 1980 and 82 it shows up in like 84 and 85 and you can actually see the the culture's arcs and falls uh through the film that they're reviewing um but you
1: do have to sort of stick stick with it for a while so that larger perspective sort of grows I, and shows it i one day hope that i can synthesize this show's pursuits in such a florid <laughs> and delightful way <laughs> <laughs> um ladies and gents this has been another episode of One Heat Minute Bobby thank you again you're an absolute legend guys 80's all over I'll link it in the um uh, I'll link it in the description of the show and I'll also make sure I link it up on the website oneheatminute.com, so you guys can follow and find it I've subscribed um the guys have got a Patreon donate if you can um Drew Scott I'm a huge fan love Bobby to pieces as I said he's one of my favourite folk um Can I just uh, ask, if you guys have got any feedback, please mail at oneheeminute.com. We'd love to hear from you. Also, um, rate, review, share the show. Um, We are absolutely on the downhill slope of this bad boy. We have some amazing and generous guests that are going to be coming on all through to the end of the show. And the show continues to dream for Mr. Michael Mann to end the show on. So I'm still throwing that out there into the universe um, to hopefully get Mr. Mann on the show as well. But until next time. We'll catch you in another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner.